to the podcast of, of course, they make me crazy. You know, we grew up with a bipolar mother addicted to pills who experienced a lot of hardships. We started this podcast to talk about our experiences with you. You know, you can really start to feel lost and trapped in their world. And we're hoping our crazy, sometimes funny stories, living with someone like that, helps you to feel normal, whole, and happy again. If you have little ones around, though, this would be a good time to pop in your headphones. Our discussions are for adults only, please. Hi there, I'm April. I'm Amanda. Welcome to our latest episode of Of Course They Make Me Crazy. Now, if you've been listening to our other episodes, then you know some of our stories of growing up with a bipolar mother and the other off-the-wall characters in our life, like our grandma and our grandpa. And if you haven't, well, please do so because you're missing out. (laughs) But we want to switch it up this episode a little bit this time around and introduce you to a very interesting doctor who's going to discuss borderline personality disorder with us. Now, have you ever had anyone in your life that maybe gets upset over small things and you just don't know how to handle them, right? Can be tough. Or maybe, hey, that sounds like the way you behave. Who knows? Well, Dr. Daniel Lobel, a clinical psychologist with more than 25 years of experience, is joining us today to talk about how to cope with that. He's in private practice based out of New York. You know, when dealing with someone with BPD symptoms, we can sometimes become enablers so we don't upset them. And then we can also start to feel like we're losing ourselves because we're catering to them too much. So he's gonna talk us through some of that. Now, in addition to psychotherapy, Dr. Lobel used to conduct clinical and forensic evaluations and consultations with attorneys and justices on matters involving mental illness and law. He's an assistant clinical professor at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in the Department of Psychiatry. Now, years ago, he started a blog on those topics, and then that blog led him to write two books. He's the author of When Your Daughter Has BPD, and the others When Your Mother Has Borderline Personality Disorder. Hi, Dr. Lobel. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for, thank you for having me, and uh, I hope everybody is healthy and well as we, we get through the current uh, COVID crisis. So I'll start with, with what BPD. BPD is Borderline Personality Disorder, and it is one of a number of different personality disorders Uh, that are diagnosed by mental health professionals. But personality disorder is a very special area within uh, the field. And personality disorders in general are pervasive patterns of relating to others and ways of thinking about things uh, that affect all relationships that a person has. The term borderline was originally uh, offered by Sigmund Freud, probably not a surprise. Uh, since he is the father of of psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And um, in his world, there were only two diagnoses originally. One was neurosis, which was a nervous disorder, more or less what we would call anxiety disorder today. And the other was called psychosis, which uh, is, is a thought disorder, such as schizophrenia or something like that. And he noticed that there were a group of patients that Um, sort of sat in the middle that were sometimes neurotic and sometimes psychotic. And when they were under a lot of stress, they became psychotic or had some psychotic symptoms. And when they were less stressed, they could operate on a neurotic level. And he termed that, that group of patients borderline. Today, 
we define a borderline personality focusing on instability of both mood and relationships uh, that, that uh, are highly volatile. And let me just say that I'm going to focus on the associated features that I think are important for our conversation here. This is not an exhaustive list of symptoms. When the person is, uh, when the person with BPD is, is um, experiencing relationships in a positive way, when they're being gratified, when they get what they want, um, they see the other person as, as wonderful, as fabulous, as the best, um, until they get disappointed. And then once they become disappointed by something, which they inevitably do, then they don't become an idealized person who disappointed them. They become devalued, the worst piece of garbage, useless, worthless. Fluctuations correspond to the mood, which it sometimes can be when you're pleasing them. They can be very sweet. They can be very nice and friendly and even social. But when you don't please them, they can not only be irritable and nasty, but sometimes abusive. This actually is one of the frustrating things about people that have intimate relationships with people with BPD, is that people that don't know the BPD sufferer well, generally only sees the kind side. And so other people uh, in casual relationships with them uh, often are unaware and say, oh, what a nice person he or she is. And that can be very frustrating to uh, people that live uh, with, uh, with sufferers of this disorder. Uh, as I mentioned before, they have very low tolerances for frustration. When they don't get what they want, when they want it, they lash out. They also, uh, they do not take responsibility for things that go wrong in their lives. If they get a bad grade in school, it's the teacher's fault, not theirs. If they get a ticket uh, driving the car too fast, that's the police officer's fault. As you could imagine, associated with the not taking personal responsibility, they very often uh, take the identity of victim. They feel that they're the victim of others and they do everything right all of the time. And when things go wrong, it's because other people do things wrong and then they're the victim, which gives them the entitlement to lash out. This sounds just like our mother. <laughs> <laughs> And Sorry about that. <laughs> well, I, now, but <laughs> yeah, you described her the way she was to a T for sure. Uh, you know, like it was one night she got into a, a car accident and she said she lost her eyesight and it wasn't her fault, but she, it was her fault. She got into a car after mm -hmm. taking some pills and she probably did lose her eyesight, but she shouldn't have done that. <laughs> it's very frustrating. And, and of course, and, and of course, um, if you don't take responsibility for something that you've done wrong, then you can't fix it. And if you don't fix it, you'll probably make that mistake again. Now, doctor, um, April had mentioned that both of you were talking about enablers. And I believe that me and my father were, unfortunately, an enabler to our, my mother, our mother. Could you elaborate on that? Absolutely. Um, one of the, one of the uh, things that affects uh, people that grow up with a, a borderline parent or, or a borderline sibling, and of course also affects people that have children who may suffer from this disorder, uh, is that because the person who's affected does not take responsibility, the other people around them often walk around feeling like they've done something wrong, they're being treated like they've done something wrong, 
they experience a tremendous amount of guilt, and it affects their self-confidence and self-esteem because parents, for example, who have borderline children, they feel like they're bad parents, and the child tells them so. Uh, children of borderline uh, parents are often told that they're lousy, rotten children, be better off if you weren't born, and so on and so forth, which causes a tremendous amount of damage to the person's self-esteem. And so people who don't understand this dynamic and don't understand this disorder, the non-affected people, work harder to please the person with borderline. So when they're told they're not doing enough, they do more. When they're told that they did something wrong, they try to fix it. And so in this way, they enable the person with BPD, with borderline, uh, to maintain the idea that everything that goes wrong is someone else's fault. You're now validating that by saying, oh yeah, I'll fix it, I'll fix it. Uh, or tiptoeing the so-called uh, walking on eggshells uh, and then feed into their sense of entitlement uh, and feed into their sense that, that when things go wrong, they belong to other people. You enable them not to take blame uh, or responsibility, I should say, for things that they've done wrong and you make the illness worse. Uh, and I've treated people like this many times. Uh, one, one woman, her husband was, was a very bad alcoholic. And so whenever they went out, she would not drink so that she could drive because she didn't want him driving while consuming alcohol. But in doing so, she was enabling him to drink to excess every single time. Yeah, sometimes we, me and my father would just give in to our, my mother, our mother, just to get a little bit of peace. So we yes. didn't have to deal with the lashing out and <laughs> whichever part of her came out that time. That's right. And that, that is, is a, a clear example of enabling and it made your mother's sickness worse. Yeah. Hey, but it's hard to stop doing that. It is, it is extremely hard. And when you do stop doing that, and, and of course this is a, a primary area of, of the work that I do with families who have an individual who's suffering from this disorder, when you stop doing it, the problem will get worse before it gets better. And the reason is because if you've been enabling someone in that way for years or decades in some situations, when you all of a sudden stop doing it, they don't believe you. So they push back. They do testing and they, they don't really believe that you mean it, you're not gonna do this anymore. And they push and push. They can become aggressive and abusive at times. Eventually, though, if you're consistent in the change in uh, uh, criteria or the change in the way you react, eventually things will then get better after that initial period where they get worse. But most people give up. Most people give up at the point where it gets worse. It's a really hard one because <laughs> we've been there and done that and we've pushed. Uh, sometimes she won, sometimes she didn't, though. I mean, we did end up taking her medication and locking it up. Um, That's what I was just thinking. Dad won that fight with her about locking the medication up. Yeah, he, mm -hmm. he stayed strong with that, and he did not let her be there once in a while. But uh, if she had an open medicine cabinet, it would have been much worse. So, you know, in, in your book, you offer skills to help many understand what they're dealing with uh, and coping skills to help them guide through these rocky times, let's talk about parents dealing with children. And you don't really believe traditional parenting can work with kids with 
BPD? And so why is that? Other than uh, the, the borderline personality disorder and uh, possibly uh, the narcissistic personality disorder, which I know we're not discussing today, but other than those two personality disorders, most people uh, are naturally, instinctively um, uh, programmed to, to seek out and, and want independence and autonomy. And so we see, like children, uh, I don't know if either of you are parents, uh, but uh, you see with children, with young children, you got the kid in the high chair and you're feeding the kid with the, high chair, with the, with the spoon, the mushy stuff they feed kids. And then at some point, the kid grabs the spoon or starts grabbing at the spoon or grabbing at your hand. The child wants to feed themselves. As soon as they're able to do that, they want to do it. As soon as they're able to walk, they want to walk. Then they want to run. You don't have to teach them. I mean, you could teach them that, but the desire, the motivation to do that is natural. People with BPD do not have that. In fact, they see independence as a form of abandonment. So that if you don't do for me what I could do for myself, I'm perfectly capable of doing it for myself, but if you don't do it for me, that means you don't love me. And it is because of that, that traditional parenting doesn't work. And so at every, the rewards of, of, of autonomy and independence, which parents appropriately use in traditional parenting, they're not of any interest to the person with BPD. They don't want that. They want to be codependent with the parent. In one recent situation, uh, a case that I've been working with the family, 18-year-old boy will not get up in the morning unless his father comes in, wakes him up, and of course, it doesn't end there. There is usually a fight where the kid says, I don't want to go to school. I don't want to, now he's in treatment. I don't want to go to treatment. There has to be a fight. And then the father has to make the kid take his medicine. The kid will not take his medicine unless the father gives it to him. This is a person with a very high IQ who chooses not to seek independence, but rather uh, uh, wishes to continue this codependent relationship with his father which obviously will never work once he graduates high school. So what is his father doing? How is he trying to teach his kid to become independent? That's where, that's where we need to uh, have a different set of skills or, or really the same skills, but modified for people that don't seek independence. And a lot of that, a lot of the, the, the core of that has to do with setting boundaries. And so with this man, uh, I told him that he had to tell his son that he will not wake him up in the morning anymore and he will not uh, be in charge of his medicine and that if the child wants to be able to continue his life, he will have to assume those responsibilities. And if he can't or won't assume those responsibilities, then we will assume that he needs someone to take care of him, but it will no longer be the father. It will be in a facility. Ooh. If you can't, if you can't take care of yourself, then you have to go to professionals who take care of you. Dad has a job. Dad has other children. He can't take care of you. You're 18 years old with 130 IQ. This cannot continue. So if you're truly disabled, then you need to go to a facility for people who are disabled. If not, then get yourself up. See, Amanda, when I told mom she was going to go back to the funny farm, if she didn't stop doing what she was doing, I was being... <laughs> good girl. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. 
And in this way also, we are holding the person responsible for their behavior or lack of behavior. And, and of course, the young man said, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And of course, I was in the room. This was part of family therapy. And I said, we're not doing it. You're doing it. You have a choice. You can either get your, you're telling me you, don't, you can't set three alarms. And I'll tell you how to set an alarm. I don't really need to tell me how to set an alarm. Okay. So it's your choice. You can either take care of yourself or go somewhere else and be taken care of. Your father is no longer going to treat you like a child, a baby, because you're 18 years old. And we had to do this. How's he going to go to college like that? He can't go take the father to college with him. <laughs> <laughs> Not unless his father is going through a divorce and wants to go. <laughs> I'm just <Right. laughs> No, the father's hoping not to go through a divorce, but this has very, been very disruptive to the marriage. Oh, I'm sure it has. Well, and then that yeah. leads me to the next question that we kind of want to discuss with you, and that is coping skills. The key coping skill in dealing with a family member who has BPD is, is setting and maintaining boundaries. People with BPD are actually described in the literature as having a boundary disorder. The boundary disorder means that they are not able, uh, they often have very weak empathy, and they're not able to know when it's appropriate, where it's appropriate to, to do something or not do something. So they might come into your home and, and without saying anything, walk into your refrigerator and start taking food. Or uh, very common in dealing with the BPD children, these children will, uh, the daughters will go into their mother's closets, take the clothing, take the mother's clothing without asking, generally returning it, either not returning it or returning it dirty or damaged. They also will help themselves to mom's wallet uh, if they need money uh, and, and so on and so forth. In addition to the boundary issues that they have with um, concrete items and, and uh, merchandise, they also are unable to manage their own emotion. And that's why there's the codependency issue. And so in the efforts to manage their emotion, they often uh, uh, involve other people, usually people that they have close relationships with, in ways that are very destructive to the relationship. For example, if uh, the person with, with BPD, and, and this area, this is done also by people that don't, some people that don't have BPD. If they're angry, or upset or frightened, instead of saying to the other person, I'm angry, upset, or frightened, they will make the other person angry or upset or frightened as a way of communicating the emotions so that the two people in the relationship can deal with the emotions together. That's unhealthy on so many levels. First of all, people don't like being projected on that way. It doesn't feel good. Secondly, uh, it creates a dependency on others. And these are the people who, as soon as they feel an emotion, rather than sitting with it and learning to cope on their own, they write on the phone, oh, this happened, I need help, I can't be alone. And they're very afraid of being alone for this reason. And this is where the fear of abandonment comes in. So the, the core skill, uh, uh, coping skill in dealing with BPD is the setting and maintaining of boundaries. And the two boundaries, what I call the primary boundaries in this area, is number one, um, we will not or I will not support anything that you're doing while you're abusing me. 
And I guess, you know, this might have meaning for the two of you because uh, apparently you've grown up in a situation like this. That's a very puzzling statement to people who have not seen this disorder. But the BPD person, they can be abusive in one moment saying, you know, I wish I didn't have any daughters. I wish I never had children. And then five minutes later, expecting you to help them. You don't help people while they're abusing you. That's the first boundary. The second boundary, second primary boundary, there's all kinds of boundaries, but the second primary boundary is that we, we will support healthy behaviors and we will not support unhealthy behaviors. Again, that may sound odd if you've not experienced a BPD, but it's very, very common. A, a, a case that, that, that I, a family that I work with recently, the daughter got out of a rehab and want to move in with the father. And the father said, um, look, if you can move in with me, can't do any drugs or alcohol. That seems kind of natural. Well, the daughter had a huge problem with that and said, absolutely not. You're a terrible father. Why, you know, marijuana makes me feel better. And, and why can't I do this? This is coming out of a rehab. And the father said, absolutely not. But only after the father consulted with me and asked me, well, you think I should just let her smoke a little? I said, are you kidding me? She just came out of rehab. You would even consider allowing someone who's just come out of rehab to use drugs and alcohol in your house? What sense does that make? But in the world of BPD and to people who have BPD, it makes a lot of sense. So we have to set up that boundary. No, that's not healthy for you. I will not support that. Yes, this is healthy. I will support that. Other boundaries, obviously the one with the, the child that was taking the mother's clothing, we had to put a lock on the closet. Had to lock the door. Of course, the child then said, and the child was 23, but the child then said, uh, what, you don't trust me? <laughs> and we we're in the office, in my office doing family therapy, and I said to the child, of course she doesn't trust you. And, the, and the, the, the young lady was mortified. Whoa, whoa, my mother doesn't trust me. Oh my God, look at this. And you, you're the therapist and you think that's okay. I said, well, wait a second. The reason your mother doesn't trust you is because she's asked you a hundred times not to go into the closet and take her clothing without asking. And a hundred times you've done it anyway. Why should, how could you, anyone, any rational person trust you under those circumstances? She didn't have an answer for that. And I'd like to just share two sub-tools, if you don't mind, uh, that work with boundary setting, because I guess because I really love them. And you can edit this out if you want, but I love them. <laughs> One is what I call the egg. The egg is, is a partner relationship. It could be husband and wife or any kind of partner relationship. Um, in, the, in the egg, the egg is opaque and the egg is fragile. Uh, partners, intimate partners, have communication with each other that they don't have with other people. That's what makes it a special and intimate relationship. That information should not be shared with other people. Mm -hmm. And a very big part of that information that should not be shared is how decisions in the couple are made. When that information is shared, if it's parents, for example, when that information is shared, that opens the door to what we call triangulation, where a child uh, or, or, or an adult uh, can manipulate this situation by interfering with the way decisions are made. Simple form of that is, you know, hey, mommy, can I have an ice cream? Uh, well, I don't know. 
I have to talk to your father. Well, if daddy says yes, is it okay with you? The child now knows, has put the mother in the position where if the mother says it's okay with me, go ask your father, now dad's the bad guy. Right. If the mother says it's not okay with me, well, I'll bet it's okay with daddy, and then the child goes to daddy. And so the proper answer is, I'll discuss it with your father. Well, if he says yes, is it okay with, with you? I'll let you know. You don't answer that question. The egg, uh, let me just give you one other quick example, not involving children, because I think the egg is so important to a healthy, intimate relationship. And I've found over the years that it's one of the big takeaways from the work that I do with couples. <clears throat> it could even be friends, where one of the friends calls up and says, hey, are you guys free for a barbecue this weekend? Oh, I'd love to come for a barbecue. Let me ask Johnny. Oh, okay. And then you come back. Yeah, nah, we can't make it. Well, now they know that the wife wanted to, to or the, the woman wanted to come to the barbecue. Johnny doesn't want to come. What is it? Johnny doesn't like us? Okay, next time we'll just invite you. And these kinds of, of, of incidents cause friction between the, the partners. And I call that scrambling the egg. So I encourage couples in intimate relationships to set a boundary by protecting the egg. The other tool that I wanted to share, because it's very, very important, is what I call form before content. Every communication has two aspects to it. The content is what you talk about. Oh, what would you like to have for dinner? You want to go for Chinese food or Italian food? Or let's do veggie tonight. The form is how the com communication is done. Is it done respectfully? Is it kind? Is it civil? Or is it abusive? And this is the boundary, this touches the boundary that you don't help people who are abusing you. You do not honor content unless the form is at least civil, but ideally respectful. Hey, you, you lousy runts, get over here, you know? Excuse me? I said, would you two, you know, mistakes come over here? Excuse me? <laughs> I'm asking you to come over. I, I, don't, I don't know what you're asking me, but when you talk to me that way, I don't hear what you're saying. I have no idea what you're saying, and I'm not going to honor your content. You want to try again? If you respect the content during a disrespectful or abusive content, that's enabling, feeding the monster, and making the disease worse. Absolutely. Well, we're going to end it there. And Dr. Lobel, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And hey, by the way, before we go, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me uh, on my website, uh, mysideofthecouch.com, or you can find me by email, uh, Katona Shrink, K-A-T-O-N-A-H-S-H-R-I-N-K, uh, at gmail.com. of us living with people suffering from mental illness have a lot to deal with too. They're not the only ones hurting. We hurt for them and we carry their burdens because we love them. We're not social workers and we don't have any professional training. We're just two girls who have lived through some things too. And we'd love to hear your story as well. Let's build a community. Email us at of course they make me crazy at gmail.com.